Chapter twenty nine of the Crown of Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Crown of Life by George Gissing. Chapter twenty nine. <clears throat> I will be frank with you, Piers, said Daniel Otway, as he sat by the fireside in his shabby lodgings, his feet on the fender, a cigarette between his fingers. He looked yellow and dried up, shivered now and then, and had a troublesome cough. "'If I could afford to be generous, I would be. I should enjoy it. It's one of the worst evils of poverty, that a man can seldom obey the promptings of his better self. I can't give you these letters. Can't afford to do so. You have glanced through them. You see, they really are what I said.' The question is, what are they worth to you? Piers looked at the threadbare carpet, reflected, and spoke. I'll give you fifty pounds. A smile crept from the corners of Daniel's shriveled lips to his bloodshot eyes. Why are you so anxious to have them? he said. I don't know and don't ask. But if they're worth fifty to you, they're worth more. You shall have them for two hundred. And at this figure the bundle of letters eventually changed hands. It was a serious drain on Piers Otway's resources, but he could not bargain long. The talk sickened him, and when the letters were in his possession he felt a joy which had no equivalent in terms of cash. He said to himself that he had bought them for Olga, in a measure, of course, for all who would be relieved by knowing that Mrs. Hannaford had told the truth, but first and foremost for Olga. On Olga he kept his thoughts. He was persuading himself that in her he saw his heart's desire. For Piers Otway was one of those men who cannot live without a woman's image to worship. Irene Derwent being now veiled from him, he turned to another beautiful face, in whose eyes the familiar light of friendship seemed to be changing, softening, ambition had misled him, not his to triumph on the heights of glorious passion, for him a humbler happiness, a calmer love. Yet he would not have been Piers Otway had this mood contented him. On the second day of his dreaming about Olga, she began to shine before his imagination in no pale light. He mused upon her features till they became the ideal beauty, he clad her body and soul in all the riches of love's treasure-house. She was at length his crowned lady, his perfect vision of delight. With such thoughts had he sat by Mrs. Hannaford at the meeting which was to be their last. He was about to utter them when she spoke Olga's name. In you she will always have a friend, if the worst happens. And when he asked, May I hope that she would some day let me be more than that? The glow of joy on that stricken face, the cry of rapture, the hand held to him, stirred him so deeply that his old love-longing seemed a boyish fantasy. Oh, you have made me happy! You have blotted out all my follies and sufferings! Then the poor, tortured mind lost itself. This was the second death 
which had upon Piers Otway the ageing effect known to all men capable of thoughts about mortality. The loss of his father marked for him the end of irresponsible years. He entered upon manhood with that grief blended of reverence and affection. By the grave of Mrs. Hannaford, he stood there only after the burial, he was touched again by the advancing shadow of life's dial, and it marked the end of youth. For youth is a term relative to heart and mind. At six-and-twenty many a man has of manhood only the physique. Many another is already falling through experience to a withered age. Piers had the sense of transition. The middle years were opening before him. The tears he shed for his friend were due in part to the poignant perception of utter severance with boyhood. But a few weeks ago, talking with Mrs. Hannaford, he could revive the spirit of those old days at Geneva, feel his identity with the Piers Otway of that time. It would never be within his power again. He might remember, but memory showed another than himself. A note from John Jacks summoned him to Queen's Gate. Not till afterwards did he understand that Mr. Jacks's real motive in sending for him was to get light upon the rupture between Arnold and Miss Derwent. Piers' astonishment at what he heard caused his friend to quit the subject. In the night that followed, Piers, for the first time in his life, felt the possibility of base action. The experience has come to all men, and whatever the result always leaves its mark. Looking at the fact of Irene's broken engagement, he could explain it only in one way. The cause must be Mrs. Hannaford, the doubt as to her behaviour, the threatened scandal. Idle to attempt surmises as to the share of either side in what had come about, the differences had been sufficiently grave to part them. And this parting was to him a joy which shook his whole being. He could have raised a song of exultation and in his hands lay complete evidence of the dead woman's guiltlessness. To produce it was possibly to reconcile Arnold, Jacks and Irene. Viewed by his excited mind, the possible became certain. He evolved a whole act of drama between those two, turning on prejudices, doubts, scruples natural in their position. He saw the effect of their enlightenment. Was it a tempting thought that he could give Irene back again into her bridegroom's arms? It brought sweat to his forehead. It shook him with the fierce torture of a jealous imagination. He fortified base suggestion by the natural revolt of his flesh. Once had he passed through the fire. To suffer that ordeal again was beyond human endurance. Irene was free. He paced the room repeating wildly that Irene was free, and the mere fact of her freedom proved that she did not love the man, so it seemed to him, in his subordination of every motive to that passionate impulse. To him it brought no hope. What of that? Irene did not belong to another man. The fire needed stirring. As he broke the black surface of coal, a flame shot up, red, lambent, a serpent's tongue. It had a voice. It tempted. He took the packet of letters from the table. He had not yet read them through, had only tested them here and there under his brother's eye. Yes, they were the letters of a woman who, suffering as he knew the strongest temptation to which her nature could be exposed, 
subdued herself in obedience to what she held the law of duty. He read page after page. Again and again she all but said, I love you. Again and again she told her tempter that his suit was useless, that she would rather die than yield. Daniel Otway had used every argument to persuade her to defy the world and follow him. Easy to understand his motives. One saw that if she had been alone, she would have done so. But there was her daughter, there was her brother. To them she sacrificed what seemed to her the one chance of happiness left in a wasted life. Piers interrupted his reading to hear once more the voice that counselled baseness. Whom would it injure if he destroyed these papers? Oh, certainly not Irene, his first thought, who he held it proved was well rescued from a mistaken marriage. Not Dr. Derwent or Olga, who, he persuaded himself, had already no doubt whatever of Mrs. Hannaford's innocence. Not the poor dead woman herself. What was this passage on which his eye had fallen? I have long had a hope that your brother Piers might marry Olga. It would make me very happy. I cannot imagine for her a better husband. It came first into my mind years ago at Geneva, and I have never lost the wish. Oh, how grateful you would make me if, forgetting ourselves, you would join me in somehow trying to bring about this happiness for those two. Piers is coming to live in London. Do see as much of him as you can. I think very, very highly of him, and he is almost as dear to me as a son of my own. Speak to him of Olga, sometimes a suggestion, and you know that I desire only his good. The voice spoke to him from the grave. It had a sweeter tone than that other. He read on. He came to the last sheet, so sad, so hopeless, that it brought tears to his eyes. Cannot you defend me? Cannot you prove the falsehood of that story? Cannot you save me from this bitter disgrace? Who will show the truth and do me justice? Could he burn that letter? Could he close his ears against that cry of one driven to death by wrong? He drew a deep sigh and looked about him as if waking from a bad dream. Why, he had come near to whole brotherhood with a man as coldly cruel and infamous as any that walked the earth. Destroying those letters, he would have been worse than Daniel. Straightway he wrote to Olga, requesting the appointment with her. Upon Olga once more he fixed his mind. He resolved that he would not part from her without asking her to be his wife. Oh, if he had but done so before hearing that news from John Jacks, then it seemed to him that Olga was his happiness. From the house at Camden Hill he came away in a strangely excited mood, glad, sorry, cold, desirous, torn this way and that by conflict of passions and reasons. The only clear thought in his mind was that he had done a great act of justice. How often does it fall to a man to enjoy this privilege? Not once in a lifetime to the multitude such opportunity is the signal favour of fate. Had he let it pass, Piers felt he must have sunk so in his own esteem that no light of noble hope would ever again have shone before him. 
he must have gone plodding the very mire of existence daniel's brother never again anything but daniel's brother would dr derwent give him a thought of thanks would irene hear how these letters were recovered sunday passed he knew not well how he wrote a letter to olga but destroyed it on monday he was very busy chiefly at the warehouses of the commercial docks a man of affairs to look upon not strikingly different from many another with whom he rubbed shoulders in fenchurch street and elsewhere on tuesday he had to go to liverpool to see an acquaintance of montcharmont who might perchance be useful to them the journey the change were not unpleasant he passed the early evening with the man in question who asked him at what hotel he meant to sleep piers named the house he had carelessly chosen adding that he had not yet been there his bag was still at the station oh, don't go there said his companion it's small and uncomfortable and dear you'll do much better at uh, this place without giving a thought to the matter otway accepted this advice he went to the station withdrew his bag and bade a cabman drive him to the hotel his acquaintance had named but no sooner had the cab started than he felt an unaccountable misgiving an uneasiness as to this change of purpose strange as he was to liverpool there seemed no reason why he should hesitate so about his hotel yet the mental disturbance became so strong that when all but arrived he stopped the cab and bade his driver take him to the other house that which he had originally chosen a downright piece of superstition he said to himself with a nervous laugh he could not remember to have ever behaved so capriciously the hotel pleased him after inspecting his bedroom he came down again to smoke and glance over the newspapers it was about half-past nine half a dozen men were in the smoking-room by ten o'clock there remained exclusive of peers only three of whom two were discussing politics by the fireside whilst the third sat apart from them in a deep chair reading a book the political talk began to interest otway he listened behind his newspaper the louder of the disputants was a man of about fifty dressed like a prosperous merchant his cheeks were flabby his chin triple or quadruple his short neck always very red grew crimson as he excited himself he was talking about the development of markets for british wares and kept repeating the phrase trade outlets as if it had a flavour which he enjoyed england he declared was falling behind in the competition for the world's trade it won't do mark my word if we don't show more spirit we shall be finding ourselves in queer street look at china now i call it a monstrous thing perfectly monstrous the way we're neglecting china oh my dear sir said the other a thin bilious man with an undecided manner we can't force our goods on a country what why that's exactly what we can do and ought to do what we have always done and always must do if we're going to hold our own vociferated he of the crimson neck i was speaking of china if you hadn't interrupted me what are the russians doing why making a railway straight to china and we look on as if it didn't matter when the matter is national life or death let me give you some figures i know what i'm talking about 
are you aware that our trade with china amounts to only half a crown ahead of the chinese population half a crown while with little japan our trade comes to something like eighteen shillings ahead let me tell you that the equivalent of that in china would represent about three hundred and sixty millions per annum he rolled out the figures with gusto culminating in rage his eyes glared he snorted defiance turning from his companion to the two strangers whom he saw seated before him i say that it's our duty to force our trade upon china it's for china's good can you deny that a huge country packed with wretched barbarians our trade civilizes them can you deny it it's our duty as the leading power of the world hundreds of millions of poor miserable barbarians and he shouted what else are the russians if you come to that can they civilize china a filthy ignorant nation frozen into stupidity and downtrodden by an autocrat well murmured the diffident objector i'm no friend of tyranny i can't say much for russia i should think you couldn't who can a country plunged in the darkness of the middle ages the country of the knout Pah, who can say anything for russia vociferating thus the champion of civilization fixed his glare upon otway who having laid down the paper answered this look of challenge with a smile well as you seem to appeal to me sounded in piers voice which was steady and good-humoured i'm bound to say that russia isn't altogether without good points you spoke of it by the by as the country of the knout but the knout as a matter of fact was abolished long ago well well yes oh yeah no one knows all about that stammered the loud man but the country is still ruled in the spirit of the knout it doesn't affect my argument take it broadly on an ethnological basis he expanded his chest sticking his thumbs into the armholes of his waistcoat the russians are a slavonic people i presume largely slav yes and pray sir what have the slavs done for the world what do we owe them what slavonic name can any one mention in the history of progress well two occur to me replied piers in the same quiet tone well worthy of a place in the history of intellectual progress there was a pole named copernic known to you no doubt as copernicus who came before galileo and there was a czech named hus john hus who came before luther the bilious man was smiling the fourth person present in the room who sat with his book at some distance had turned his eyes upon otway with a look of peculiar interest hm. you've made a special study i suppose of this sort of thing said the fat-faced politician with a grin which tried to be civil conveying in truth the radical english contempt for mere intellectual attainment you're a supporter of russia i suppose oh i have no such pretension russia interests me that's all oh come now would you say that in any single point russia modern russia as we understand the term 
has shown the way in practical advance all were attentive the silent man with the book seeming particularly so i should say in one rather important point piers replied russia was the first country to abolish capital punishment for ordinary crime the assailant showed himself perplexed incredulous but this state of mind lasting only for a moment gave way to genial bluster well come now that's a matter of opinion to let murderers go unhung <laughs> as you please i could mention another interesting fact long before england dreamt of the simplest justice for women it was not an uncommon thing for a russian peasant who had appropriated money earned by his wife to be punished with a flogging by the village commune a flogging well well there you are cried the other with hoarse laughter <laughs> what did i say if it isn't the knout it's something equivalent as if we hadn't proved long ago the demoralising effect of corporal chastisement we should be ashamed sir to flog men nowadays in the army or navy it degrades we have outgrown it no no sir it won't do i see you have made a special study and you've mentioned very interesting facts but you must see that they are wide of the mark painfully wide of the mark well i must be thinking of turning in i have to be up at six worse luck to catch a train uh, good night mr simmons and good night to you sir good night he bustled away humming to himself and after musing a little the bilious man also left the room piers thought himself alone but a sound caused him to turn his head the person whom he had forgotten the silent reader had risen and was moving his way a tall slender graceful man well dressed aged about thirty he approached otway came in front of him looked at him with a smile and spoke sir will you permit me to thank you for what you have said in defence of russia my country the english was excellent almost without foreign accent Piers stood up and held out his hand, which was cordially grasped. He looked into a face readily recognisable as that of a little Russian, a rather attractive face with fine, dreamy eyes and a mouth expressive of quick sensibility, above the good forehead, waving chestnut hair. "'You have travelled in Russia?' pursued the stranger. "'I lived at Odessa for some years, and I have seen something of other parts. "'You speak the language?' Piers offered proof of this attainment by replying in a few Russian sentences. His new acquaintance was delighted, again shook hands and began to talk in his native tongue. They exchanged personal information. The Russian said that his name was Korolovich, that he had an estate in the government of Poltava, where he busied himself with farming, but that for two or three months of each year he travelled. Last winter he had spent in the United States, he was now visiting the great english seaports merely for the interest of the thing otway felt how much less impressive was the account he had to give of himself but his new friend talked with such perfect simplicity so entirely as a good-humoured man of the world that any feeling of subordination was impossible poltava i know pretty well he said gaily i've been more than once at the july fair buying wool at Kharkov, too, on the same business. They conversed for a couple of hours, at first amusing themselves with the rhetoric and arguments of the red-necked man. 
Korolevitch was a devoted student of poetry, and discovered not without surprise the Englishman's familiarity with that branch of Russian literature. He heard with great interest the few words Otway let fall about his father, who had known so many Russian exiles. In short, they got along together admirably, and on parting for the night promised each other to meet again in London some ten days hence. When he had entered his bedroom and turned the key in the lock, Piers stood musing over this event. Of a sudden there came into his mind the inexplicable impulse which had brought him to this hotel, rather than to that recommended by the Liverpool acquaintance. An odd incident indeed. It helped a superstitious tendency of Otway's mind, the disposition he had, spite of obstacle and misfortune, to believe that destiny was his friend. End of chapter 29